0: Welcome to DAC Beechcroft's Lawcast. I'm Alex Locke and I head up DACB's National Employment, Pensions and Immigration team. And in this episode, I'm talking to Richard Loxley, a partner in our London team, and Kate Galloway, a legal director also in our London team. Hi, Alex. Happy to
1: join you on this
0: episode.
2: Yes. Hi, Alex.
0: Hi both. So, despite the hope the roadmap for lifting lockdown by the 21st of June brings, the coronavirus pandemic and multiple lockdowns has caused ongoing disruption to employment tribunal litigation, which will leave its mark long after this summer. That's why we've chosen to look at the COVID legacy on ET litigation in this fourth law cast in our series on the COVID legacy on employment related issues. In this law cast, we'll look at three issues. Firstly, the number of claims issued and disposed of during the pandemic, and where that leaves the system as society starts to unlock. Secondly, we'll look at remote tribunals. And thirdly, we'll look at how COVID has changed the litigation dynamic. So let's start off with the numbers. Is it right that the number of claims being issued has risen over the course of the pandemic?
2: Yes, that's right. Listeners may not be aware that the Ministry of Justice issues quarterly stats setting out how many claims are issued and dealt with in its various tribunals. And it's clear from the latest quarter for which the statistics have been published, which is July to September 2020, that during the pandemic, ET claims have risen to their highest levels since 2013-14, They've also risen considerably on claims compared with the same quarter last year. So during July to September 2020, single claim receipts have actually risen to 11,000 and multiple claim receipts have risen to 19,000, which is a respective 13 and 24% increase compared with the same quarter in 2019. So perhaps it's obvious, but Richard, what effect would you say this has had?
1: Well, there's there's been a corresponding sharp increase in the backlogs which the tribunal system is now having to deal with. I think it's fair to say that that's quite significant. The number of new claims being issued isn't the only reason for this backlog, though. So at the same time as the number of claims being issued has gone up, there's been a huge strain on the tribunal's resources as a result of the pandemic. In the first lockdown last March, several tribunals had to close altogether and that meant that the number of claims being disposed of really went down. And then in the period between April and June of last year, the number of disposals fell by more than 40%. Since then, the tribunals have grappled with new technology to deliver remote hearings, as well as putting in place social distancing measures to enable in-person hearings to go ahead where that's appropriate. So the situation certainly improving, but it does mean that the number of outstanding claims has risen too.
0: And presumably, Richard, the result of that is that fewer cases have been heard.
1: Yeah, exactly. The statistics that Kate's referred to show that a 13% rise in the number of single claims being received by the tribunals. They also reveal that there was a 7% drop in disposals of those claims over the same period. So that results in a 22% increase in outstanding caseload. It's also taking more time for these claims to be dealt with. On average, five weeks more than than during the same quarter in 2019. And then for multiple claims, disposals fell by a much more significant 61%. Overall, the tribunals disposed of 39% fewer claims in July to September last year, compared with the same period in 2019. And at the risk of sounding a little bit gloomy, it's anticipated that claims are likely to rise further in the months ahead and then potentially accelerate further again when the furlough scheme ends, which, as our listeners may now know, is due to be at the end of September this year. So I think the upshot of all of this is that in some tribunals, cases are now being listed for final hearings well into 2022.
0: So we've got a picture of rising claims being submitted, but more difficulties in claims being disposed of. So what steps have been put in place to try and increase capacity?
2: Well, a number of changes have been made in an attempt to help deal with the backlog of claims. So first, the Employment Tribunal has changed some of its rules to try and speed things up, including more flexibility for remote hearings to be held, which will allow more cases to be heard.
0: OK, we'll we'll come back on to that. But anything else?
2: Yes, they're also permitting non-employment judges to sit in the employment tribunal. And I should add, before listeners are unduly alarmed, that this is high court judges and judges from specialist tribunals who do have some experience of employment law. But in addition, the tribunals are also widening the scope for multiple claimants and respondents to use the same ET1 and ET3 forms and allowing claim forms to be accepted, despite an error in the early conciliation number.
0: So hopefully those changes will mean no more satellite litigation about those things. Quite, though one of our colleagues in London has been involved in that litigation, so of course it's all
1: good law. Um, But back on the theme of increasing tribunal capacity, there have been some other changes of note, all of which took effect on the 8th of October last year. Firstly, and possibly most significantly, allowing legal officers to carry out administrative tasks which are currently reserved for employment judges. I think this is a laudable aim to enable judges to focus on the more substantive issues and free up time to hear cases. There are a few concerns about the delegation of some tasks which do involve a degree of legal nuance and require judgment calls to be made. But the list of tasks which can now be carried out by legal officers includes accepting and rejecting claim form and response forms, extending time for employers to respond to a claim form, ordering the production of further and better particulars of claims, as well as dismissing claims which have been withdrawn. Secondly, and on the subject of claims dismissed on withdrawal, these will now be excluded from the public register of judgments that one can access online I'm not sure how much time this will really save, but it's probably worth flagging to listeners that as the vast majority of these withdrawals will have followed the parties having reached a settlement, this new measure will reduce the publicity involved for a respondent, which I think is probably welcome. Um, And finally, allowing tribunals to list cases for hearing before the deadline for responding to the claim has passed, essentially trying to pin down some early hearing dates.
0: OK, so those, certainly the first one, is quite a significant change in employment tribunal practice. But in reality, have we seen much effect from these changes in practice yet? In truth, Alex, not so much, as I think some of these changes will take a bit of time to flush
1: through the system. But I have certainly seen several tribunals getting on the front foot with an early hearing date, communicating that at the same time as the tribunal serves a new claim on the employer. Now, in several cases, this has proved a little over-ambitious, but it's something we should expect to see more often. The other thing I've seen is tribunals being much more punchy when it comes to how many days a case should actually be listed for. I've heard some judges express the view that if it's a claim for unfair dismissal only, it should be capable of being dealt with in a day, maybe two days at the outside. So this means parties will really need to think harder and earlier about the realistic length of hearings, and not be surprised if they receive some pushback from the tribunals on the time they want for those hearings.
0: I think we've all come across that, and one concern might be the effect this has on litigants in person, who obviously aren't familiar with the tribunal system and how long things should take. But there have also been changes to early conciliation rules, haven't there, Richard, to try and reduce claims being issued in the first place?
1: Yeah, that's right. There's definitely been a push around alternate dispute resolution. And the rules about early conciliation changed on the 1st of December last year. So instead of having a one-month conciliation period with ACAS, which could then be extended, as you know, by a further two weeks if both parties agreed, now the standard position is a six-week conciliation period. This runs from the date the claimant first contacts ACAS and can't be extended. I think the hope is that more claims will settle in this window, but of course the pandemic has also impacted on ACAS's resources, and it's fair to say there have been some issues with the availability of ACAS officers during this time.
0: Okay, so good to get greater certainty about the conciliation period, but obviously problematic in relation to availability of ACAS officers, and hopefully that will change as things begin to unlock. Uh, There's also been a recruitment drive to appoint more judges as well. I know that in the press there's been some criticism of the new judges, quite unfairly in my view. But these new judges are needed after years of under-resourcing. And these are all appointments made by the Independent Judicial Appointments Commission. So one would expect the calibre of new judges would be high anyway. Okay, well, let's move on to our second topic of remote employment tribunals. I've long felt that the tribunal system was in need of modernisation. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. Colleagues litigating in the high courts have had digital bundles for a while, but until the pandemic, a number of us were carrying round lever arch files with volumes of paper in for our bundles. I know both Kate and Richard have carried out hearings over CVP That's the Tribunal System Zoom equivalent. Kate, what would your top tips be for these sort of hearings?
2: I think very practically, consider the IT set up in advance of the hearing and warn witnesses there can be a few technical hitches. When I did a lengthy full merits remote hearing in the autumn, both of the parties, and I think actually the judge as well, experienced IT issues at one time or another. But the tribunal and the judge were very understanding, and I think they expect IT issues to arise and and bake that into the process. There's also a need to think ahead about where the witnesses will give evidence from so that they're as comfortable and uninterrupted as possible. And, of course, what technology they will have at their disposal. So it's worth remembering that they will still need to have access to a copy of their witness statement and the bundle, whether that's an electronic copy or a paper version, as well as obviously having a screen to see the proceedings. In my case, we spent quite a lot of time in advance of the remote hearing, working out how this would all work in practice for each witness and making sure they had a suitable laptop Other tips include checking with witnesses in advance how they wish to be sworn in before giving evidence and thinking carefully about how how everyone will communicate during the hearing and will give instructions to the barrister. We've tried various different options, including setting up a dedicated WhatsApp group or using the chat function on Microsoft Teams. But as we unlock, it will obviously be possible to start using offices again. And one of my top tips would be to consider whether a party can gather together in the office to essentially recreate a tribunal room, as opposed to everyone logging on remotely from different locations. And that's what I did in in my case back in the autumn, and it worked very well.
0: That seems like a really sensible suggestion, and certainly one that will deal with some of the problems that you identified, particularly in terms of technology. In terms of the time it takes for the hearing itself, is it quicker?
2: No, if anything, I think it takes a little longer, in fact. You need to allow more time for any technical hitches. And there tend to be more breaks scheduled, as everyone seems to find remote hearings just a bit more tiring due to appearing on camera for long periods of time, and I think the more focused nature of the hearing.
0: I think we've all been a bit zoomed out over the course of lockdown, both professionally and socially. but. Richard, turning to you in terms of preparing for a remote hearing, what would be your tips?
1: Yes, yeah, good question. I think firstly, make sure you've disclosed all relevant documents in good time. Don't turn up on the day with new documents. Of course, you shouldn't do this anyway, regardless of how the hearing is actually taking place. But we know from years of experience that it does sometimes happen. Now, it's not an insurmountable problem where you've got a multi-day remote hearing but a judge is likely to be very unhappy if a witness suddenly announces they have new evidence when you're not all in the same room to hand it over and you've only got a short time for the hearing. Second, make sure your agreed electronic bundle is properly bookmarked and that the page numbers of the documents in the e-bundle correspond accurately to the index and to the document reference in witness statements. Otherwise you'll end up with confusion reigning as everyone be looking at the wrong documents on screen and this will eat up valuable hearing time. Third, if you've got a case that's been listed a long way into the future, you should seriously think about front loading some of the preparations, get the documents, take the statements before memories fade too much. Fourthly, I think if witnesses can't attend a hearing that's been listed, you'll now need to have a really good reason, especially if you're asking for a postponement on that basis. A witness only needs Wi-Fi access, so particularly if a holiday has been booked after the hearing has been listed, which with current long listings is a likely scenario, there won't be a compelling excuse for a witness not being available. And finally, it's also important to remember that the press have access to the remote hearing link as well so making sure that the client's ready to deal with the press and any attention from the press is not something that can be forgotten
0: yeah that's a that's a really good point richard because that often is something that falls down the list now before we move on to look at how the pandemic has changed the litigation dynamic It's worth mentioning that remote hearings are likely to outlive the pandemic. This is something that had been flagged up a number of years ago in various modernisation papers for the tribunals. This is particularly the case for more simple tribunal claims, which may involve an unlawful deduction of wages claim, for instance. But I think they'll also stay for some more complicated claims too. Kate, what sort of factors are currently considered? when deciding whether to hold the hearing remotely?
2: So there's no specific tests prescribed in the presidential guidance which outlines the issues for an employment judge to consider when making a decision about whether to hold a hearing remotely or in person. But the factors taken into consideration are first and foremost the need to give effect to the overriding objective to deal with cases justly and considering the wishes of the parties, which the parties can flag up in their ET1 and ET3 forms. In particular, employment judges will need to consider the personal circumstances of the participants in the hearing, including, for example, the impact of any disability or vulnerability. So, for example, we've had cases where a witness is clinically vulnerable or needs to shield and has been concerned about the risk associated with travelling to a tribunal building for an in-person hearing. And the tribunals, as you would expect, have been willing to show a lot of flexibility in these circumstances. An employment judge will also consider issues such as whether there's a language barrier or need for an interpreter. A further factor that's taken into consideration by an employment judge is the length of delay if the parties have to wait for an in-person hearing, and this can be especially relevant for claimants and individual named respondents who may be particularly concerned about delay. Whether or not the parties have legal representation is a further factor that's taken into consideration, and if they do, this generally tends to make it more likely that a remote hearing will be ordered. Access to necessary technology is is obviously another relevant factor, as is the nature of the case. For example, a case that turns very heavily on the credibility of the witnesses when giving evidence might favour an in-person hearing rather than a remote hearing, as would, I think, a particularly sensitive case such as one concerning allegations of sexual harassment.
0: Sure, and that's, that's quite a list of factors to take into account. You mentioned flexibility earlier too, Kate. How does that play in?
2: Yes, I think flexibility is, is generally encouraged. And so far, we've seen tribunals being quite willing to accommodate what we would call hybrid hearings. So if you have a sensitive multi-day hearing the evidence could be given in person but then the hearing could continue remotely for submissions or delivering judgment equally there seems generally to be scope for a participant to join an in-person hearing remotely if their personal circumstances make physical attendance difficult so for example the instance i gave of of the witness that was concerned about travelling on public transport And of course, one benefit of this new flexibility is there shouldn't any longer be an issue about accommodating witnesses who are in different jurisdictions and need to give evidence remotely.
0: Sure. The final issue I'd like to comment on is the impact of the backlog and remote tribunals on the litigation dynamic. It's certainly been my experience that a remote tribunal doesn't focus the mind of the claimant in the same way as the prospect of going to court and the scope to settle at the tribunal door has clearly reduced. Listing the case a year away also doesn't focus the claimant's mind on what they may actually recover, and there's not the opportunity through disclosure and witness statement exchange to focus the mind early on. Richard, before we close, have you seen this too? Are there any silver bullets to resolve this?
1: Yeah, I mean, in short, I don't think there are any silver bullets. Obviously, we've talked earlier in this law cast about the revamped early conciliation scheme. And hopefully, employers can use that as a genuine window of opportunity to try and focus minds on seeing if there's a potential to settle a matter. But certainly in respect of what I've seen and heard, the quality of decisions isn't adversely impacted by the fact there may have been a delay or because a hearing has taken place remotely. But where cases are being listed a long way in the future, there are still opportunities for front-loading the work and the strategic thinking, and for claims with obvious weaknesses, it's still important that you keep the pressure up early, as in my experience, tribunals can still find the time to list half-day and single-day preliminary hearings in order to deal with things like strikeout applications or applications
0: for deposit orders, just as an example. Thanks, Richard. That's a really important point for people to keep in mind. Unfortunately, the time's run out. There's plenty more we could cover in relation to this. In this podcast, we've looked at the number of claims issued and disposed of during the pandemic and where that leaves the system as society starts to unlock. We've looked at remote tribunal hearings and we've looked at how COVID has changed the litigation dynamic just remains for me to say a big thank you to you, Richard, and to you, Kate, for joining me on this episode. Thanks, Alex. Really good to chat with you. Bye-bye.
2: Thanks, Alex. Bye.